Okay, well, here we are, Professor Latinx Podcast, and we're going to talk about, we are going to talk about Pacific Rim. Um, yeah, so we have Mintu, Rachel, Hannah, Jendi, and Bimni here with me from our film and comics class. And yeah, we're going to do the 2013 Pacific Rim, Guillermo del Toro. Mintu, what do you, what are some sort of first impressions or second or third impressions about that film? Okay, so I've seen that movie twice now, and the first time I remember I was a lot younger, so I didn't really understand it, but I do remember, like, I thinking it was so cool, like, it was so, like, it really had, it was a really, like, um, feel-good movie, because it was, like, humanity coming together and putting aside our differences to fight against these big monsters, and it was also very um, reminiscent of, like, different anime that I used to watch back in the day, like Evangelion and, like... Voltron now, <laughs> yeah, and like um, other really big like Mecca. So it was really like it was kind of nostalgic for me, and it was just like I really liked the characters and the robots were really cool. So overall, the first time I watched it, it was awesome. I liked it so much. Very cool. Now, but hold on, you're in college now. Yeah. So looking back or looking at it again, are you thinking differently about it? Okay, so when I watched it again the second time, I like the wow factor was still there. Like I'm much more aware of other things now. Like watching it again was definitely still like a really good experience cuz like the music was still just as cool. Like the CGI is still just as good as when we saw it the first time. But now like like now that I'm older and like I have a different understanding of like different cultures and stuff like that, like I see where the problems in that movie lies, especially with um representation. While I think that the movie does a lot with um, Asian representation in particular, um, there are definitely a lot of shortcomings, um, which I hadn't like realized before just because I wasn't thinking about it earlier. But now, like, like now, whenever I watch anything, I'm definitely viewing it with more of a filter and lens, like in terms of like, is this good representation? Is this like a good? Um, is this a good showing of like my culture and like? like what I feel and stuff like that. Okay, great. Um, who, who wants to jump in here? I feel like I also had a very similar reaction when I watched it, kind of like the style and the aesthetic was very like, wow, this is a lot like to other things I watched. Like you were talking about different anime and mecha and kaiju, which is also something that I you know have an affinity for. And I was like, oh, this is kind of like this style is not something you usually see in a Hollywood blockbuster sort of with that leaning. But then, like you said, then when you look at it and you kind of pause and you realize, you know, this could be called style over substance. But then when you actually look at the substance, I have a lot of conflicting thoughts about it because on one hand, I think it's really trying to do some cool things. And I know that, you know, Del Toro is a very innovative director and I really like him and what he's done. And I think that it wasn't, you know, a careless act of his. And I think he was genuinely trying to do really cool things in regards to, you know, gender and race and cultural politics. And I think some of those things succeed while some of them just miss the mark or he tries to do it, but just doesn't take into account all the nuances involved with it, mainly with a lot of the aesthetic choices that he makes and kind of almost leaning on a fetish fetishization of it. 
uh, when we were talking about kind of the um, influence that it had also with Blade Runner and how Blade Runner also has a similar thing with um, like cyberpunk aesthetic and with Asian representation there. And those parts feel like it falters, but then on other aspects, I feel like it it succeeds with regards to kind of gender and subverting a lot of like male gaze tropes and things like that. So I'm very conflicted on how I feel about this film. Wow, that's a lot, (laughs) you guys. But style style over substance. Um, And so Jindy, I I know you want to jump in here. Yeah, Yeah, um, I also, I was like very intrigued. The entire movie um, like was, like did not go in expecting to see Ms. Moki as a Asian character. So that representation was like um, really refreshing. but then also, like, like I think what some other people have, like, picked up on, um, like, there were a couple of things initially was, like, you know, the streak in her hair as, like, a Japanese woman um, and the fact that she, it seems like um, they intended to cast a Japanese woman and not a mixed race woman. But then what are the politics of it when it ends up looking like like she has a lot of very, like, Eurocentric standards of beauty um and I think that that was like a little suspicious to me of like they had to pick like a very like western looking woman and we couldn't like reclaim like what like um like Japanese beauty was um I think there was also like um something we talked about in class was like the topic of orientalism and whenever we portray the east um orientalism is like described as like how the west views the east and it's defining the east from the west imaginations um and so when most of this movie is situated in hong kong um but you see like like two one Asian character cast as like a lead role and this Asian character is almost white passing and then like you like a lot of the people playing really minor roles are the Hong Kong people um and then it's still like like white characters like you know dominating the plot like how does this fall into tropes of orientalism um yeah, really good orientalism. God, right? Um, so much positive stuff, but then that kind of deep orientalist aesthetic and like getting back to substance where you're kind of decontextualizing cultures and language and um, subjectivities, right? Um, Bamni, did you want to jump in here? Um, I feel like a lot of what I was thinking has been said always. Um, I thought it was really interesting yeah, like that. I also thought it was interesting. Uh, what's his name? One of the characters who was doing like the tech stuff mm-hmm. is supposed to be he's supposed to be proven American and Chinese, I believe. And I thought, again, it was interesting that you couldn't read him at all as Asian. Like, I know that mixed people all look very different, but you couldn't read him at all as Asian. And it was like, oh, like, I feel like we're in Hong Kong. Like, is there where, like, the Asian people are available when it's there to, like, move the plot. Like, when Hong Kong, when, like, the Hong Kongers, like, when they, like, throw, like, uh, the scientists are like, give him to the kaiju because he's here for them. That's, like, the only time you really get to hear people, like, speaking like another language other than English and when Mari Mari like 
we have this whole scene where uh uh what's the main character the main male lead Raleigh Raleigh okay <laughs> yeah Raleigh he like when him and Miss Mari first meet he like speaks to her in Japanese and like throws her off guard and so I was like oh we're gonna be like this is gonna be going in and out of Japanese like we're gonna get some subtitles here you know like this will be interesting but instead the film was like heavy dominated English versus like the comics where like she speaks in Japanese to him a lot and then also in the comics when she switches like she learns English when they like go into the drift but he doesn't learn Japanese in the comics like how does that work how is she learning English (laughs) and he doesn't learn Japanese you know that whole trope of like you know um you know American Western people thinking like, oh, we're better. Like we're going to like civilize you, or we're going to you know give you our language or give you something. And also, you know, the dynamics of a white man and an Asian woman in a relationship is you know played out a lot. Um, so, but I think in certain ways it does disrupt a lot of those tropes. Like I don't think that I don't think she's just like you know, the stereotype of Asian women portrayed as, like, very quiet, very meek, very incapable of fending for themselves in, like, media and stuff. And she is, she is, to me, displayed as an equal partner in the film. Like, she's, like, a big part of why we're able to do anything. But I still feel like there's this push of, like, Oh, you know, the Western way, even when we have like these moments of like Asian culture in certain ways being celebrated. But then you're like, "Mm, like, is it really being celebrated as being like what we said before, fetishized at points? Mm. Yeah, good. Um, Hannah, what's on your mind? Yeah, um, kind of going off some of your points, I kind of was drawn to what we talked about in class about like America slash white saviorism. I thought, especially like thinking back to films like Independence Day, and we were kind of discussing, well, they do more because, you know, they bring us to the East, but they bring America there to solve the problem. Like, it's not like we're collaborating with local people. It's not like all the countries are really coming together. It's still America and their resistance is coming to save the world. They're going across the country to save the world. And I kind of felt like was it, it was Hong Kong was kind of presented more as just like an exotic environment for the film to take place in, kind of like in like... Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible movies, you know, when he heads to the Middle East and we just have that little shot at the bottom, like we were in Iran, just for kind of an interesting backdrop. That's more what it felt like to me than actually about getting this world cooperation and bringing in these other cultures. It was kind of just, let's spice up the background of this film a little bit. I think on the topic of saviorism, um, I was really interested by the dynamic between the general um, and Miss Mori, because, like, I feel like rarely are there, like, well, rarely is there representation, period, among, like, um, like Black and Asian relationships, but then also the fact that it was, like, a positive relationship where um, the general, like, rescued Miss Mori, and I think there were some interesting politics behind that where, like, um, what does it mean for the Black man to be the one who is capable of doing the saving um, and also um, to, like, be viewed in a hero in that sense um, and for Miss Mori to, like, base their relationship on like mutual respect um in that one scene where she was like 
like I'm not doing this for obedience. It's because I respect him. Um, so I think that was like also really positive representation. Mm-hmm. PTSD, right? And Asianness. Um, yeah. Do we want to kind of push that a little bit? Maybe trouble that? Rachel, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, I feel like it kind of relates to something that I was thinking about um, when Hannah was speaking about like just using kind of Asianness as a backdrop. And it goes with part of why I have such conflicting feelings about it is because I feel like you can tell that this film was a passion project and a labor of love for Del Toro and that he has a lot of genuine love and excitement for, you know, the kaiju and mecha inspiration that he's taking. But I feel like it's complicated by the fact that that's kind of all it is, is passion and love. And he's not he's not able to separate himself from that and kind of critically look at it and look at, okay, well, maybe instead of just taking it as, I like this thing, so I'm going to use the aesthetic of this thing here. I'm just going to take these tropes and use them instead of kind of looking at them and deconstructing them in a more productive way, especially with the PTSD, because a lot of times in different mecha shows, the protagonists have to have this very traumatic past that, you know, ultimately links them to the machine that they're piloting. And, you know, it all goes in this circle and cyclical thing of life and which can work in those contexts, but they're usually framed in a different cultural way. And I feel like he's just kind of taking that trope and using it and just kind of plugging it in to use it because it's just kind of one of those checkbox list things to make it be more part of this like love letter that he's creating to the genre. And I feel like he had an opportunity to complicate it, but he didn't. And Mm -hmm. then it just comes off being something as another like obstacle that they have to get through and another like point on the list between acts and things like that. And it's not really treated with respect very much. It's just treated as here's this obstacle. We got over it. Great. It's not really going to be talked about again. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Mintu, what's on your mind with all of this? Um, So I remember talking to my friend about Pacific Rim, and we talked about how it would have been, like, a really good idea for, like, a TV show. And, like, like Mako's PTSD could have been addressed as, like, like, an issue throughout the show instead of just, like, one thing, like you said, and then we get over it and it's never addressed again. Um, I know, like, Pacific Rim is very similar to Voltron in the sense that, like, there's, like, a big machine and the characters who pilot it. Like, one character in in particular, the the captain, he has a lot of PTSD issues and there are, like, lasting consequences, but it's not an issue that is, like, it just happens once and then never again. Because it is a TV, TV show, we can regularly address it. I feel like if um, we were going to talk about, like, Mako's um, issue in the movie, like, it, it, like, there should have been a time outside of it where it was just that one big consequence and, like, oh, no, like, she's going to fire the gun and then, like, it's all good after that. Like, she didn't have any issues, um, like, during the big battle or anything. And um, so it was kind of like, oh, it's just a plot point now. Like, it's just, like, a singular moment. Um, I thought it was interesting that, like, Mago, she's, like, so, like, in the scene, she has PTSD, obviously, but I wondered, like, we don't really explore, like, rally, like, in how, in the sense of, like, why did we choose, like, obviously, she's very traumatized by the kaiju and stuff, and that would make sense, but I wonder why also isn't rally paralyzed? Didn't he watch his brother get killed by the kaiju, like, in front of him, and then he was, like, for years, he, like, didn't work on it. And similarly, she, like, wasn't able to man the, like, like, she talks about earlier in the film that she has all these kills in the simulator, but she hasn't been able to man it for real because of the fear of her PTSD. But I think it would have been, I think, more interesting if we had talked about how 
two people with PTSD are coping like throughout the film and like also like coping and how maybe possibly they could help each other in a world that maybe doesn't understand their experiences. I think it's cool that like we have an Asian American character who has a mental illness on screen and she's like a positive character because I feel like we don't get to see a lot of people of color you know show that they have mental illness on screen in that sense but I don't know I feel like they like what you guys are saying they could have done more with it it seems like it's just used as an obstacle and then like I don't know I kind of I guess it puts a distaste in my mouth just to see it like oh, like, it's just this big obstacle. And, like, look, like, the power of friendship fixed it. Like, that's not what happens in real life. (laughs) You know, PTSD doesn't get cured just because you have, like, somebody who's there to support you. But I think it would have been cool to see how both people cope maybe together and see how, like, maybe they can, you know, it makes their relationship closer, too. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, the fact is that Mako's PTSD becomes a threat, right? Because she it, she al- allows it, according to the script and to the film, to take over, and suddenly everybody's running and screaming, and here we are back again to the Asian threat narrative, right? As kind of um, anchored in this moment where an Asian character, model minority character, is no longer in control. But Hannah, let's hear from you. A little yeah, bit. yeah, I was kind of going off both of those points. Is for me, what stuck out was that with Raleigh, while he did undergo those similar experiences, it was kind of like a success narrative for him is how he's going to overcome this. He got past it when his brother died. He still saved like the Jaeger. He got out of there. And even with Mako in that scene, he was in her memory helping her instead of undergoing like his own. He had a little bit of his own traumatic experience, but he quickly got past that in order to help Mako. And for her, it turned outward. She was not able to cope. She was threatening everyone around her. Like her PTSD was a danger to society, whereas Raleigh's was something that like he was able to work through and like help others. And I thought it would be more interesting to see both of them kind of going through that together instead of one of them kind of coming out with conquering, you know, their mental illness and one, it's just totally debilitating them. Yeah, and I just think like mental illness as a plot point is just like kind of a cop out and not creative. Um, Yeah. And I think it would have been so much more interesting to explore mental illness through also the lens of masculinity because then with Raleigh, you could also look at how mental illness affects masculinity and a lot lot of times how they're not allowed to process trauma and how trauma with masculinity could have, you know, interfered with the narrative, but not necessarily in a threatening way, but in a way, a chance for growth that isn't just like, oh, yeah, we beat up the big monsters and now I'm over it in a way, more quiet way of, you know, coming to terms with that trauma and processing it in a productive way. And I think there could have been an opportunity for that. And it may have made so it would have had to sacrifice some of the other narrative choices. But I think you have to choose what you're going to focus on and what you're going to fully develop rather than just kind of throwing crumbs out and seeing which ones work. And I think that was an opportunity that was missed. Yeah, so white whiteness, but also masculinity and working class, right? Raleigh is coded as working class very much, right? Um, but Mintu, you were going to jump in here with something. Um, I was going to say, like, the scene itself just isn't written well. Like, throughout, like, her flashback and... Like, she's running the whole time, and she's, like, freaking out. But the one time that she raises her hand up that also happens to activate the plasma gun, like, of all things that, like, like in her flashback that transfer into real life, it's her raising up the hand. And I feel like, like, 
like logically speaking, you wouldn't make a weapon where you just raise your hand and it activates, you know? Like, Especially like, when they're testing for flash yeah, right, drives, like, exactly. the first time. Like, maybe they should have just done, like, like a dry run, you know? Right. Like, they set it up in a way that, like, yeah, obviously, like, they set her up to fail. Like, they wrote... They wrote it so that her. They wrote it so that her character was going to have like a traumatic, ex- like flashback, and was going to cause danger. Like it could have been avoided very easily, and like if you were, if like the characters in the movie just went about it logically. So like because they like they weren't written that way, it shows that like that entire portion of the movie was dedicated so that she was going to fail, and like yeah. So let me ask you guys this, um, and then I want to kind of move us to compare really briefly to some other kinds of movies like this, like the Transformers and uh, maybe even Real Steel, which also has machines and kind of working class white uh, masculinity. But they, the original script had romance, and then they kind of evacuated the romance. But did they? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think, you know, Bemney was kind of leaning toward, well, this is a, maybe a first in that we have uh, kind of, you know, maybe more equal setting uh, footing between the two characters. And they don't kiss. Um, but I don't know. Let's dig in there a little bit, Minty. You- um, I read something about how, like, they're, they're like, um, when they like put their foreheads together, it was like a knowing um, like forehead touch because they had been like in the drift together. Like they knew how the other felt, so they didn't need to say anything. They didn't need to have like the final kiss that all movies had. I th- I personally liked it a lot. I really liked how the relationship ended at the end of the movie. Um, like you could tell that they had a very strong. Um, emotional connection and it wasn't like necessarily romantic like it, you it could be it left it left a lot of like ambiguity for audiences to decide and I personally liked it a lot I thought it was very refreshing like like they could have just gone with like the stereotypical usual end final kiss but they chose not to and I think it's because like um like the creators know that Mako and Raleigh's connection runs much deeper because they've like been in each other's minds. They like have known what each other have felt and like they have been through like crazy battles together. So I think it just represented like a much deeper connection than neural like, the neural yeah. handshake. Mm-hmm. Okay. But let's I know you guys, this is controversial handles. I really read it as a romance when I was watching it. Um, I think the main scene that really got me was when she's looking through the peephole at him, like while he's taking off his shirt. I was like, that's kind of like a romantic thing. That's kind of like that sexual tension build up type of scene that you see so often in those kind of films. And I think for me, they definitely did not have the kiss at the end, but it still felt and I do agree that like their connection could really just that could be all it was. But for me, it still felt really romantic. You know, their faces are so close together and the guy almost died. Like she's not going to start immediately kissing him. But I kind of read it as romantic could lead to something in the future, like leaving it open-ended for us. But I read it as there were feelings there. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I feel like the forehead touch was very intimate, like, Mm -hmm. even though it wasn't actual kiss. But I think there were things that led up to it. Like, when they're in the mecca, the, the suit, and they're talking about, like, he's like, you know, I never saw a future before this. Like... 
Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. You, I feel like you say that to somebody you're romantically interested <laughs> in, man. Like that's like something that like is very romantic. And like that scene that you were talking about, like the shirt, like. And I read about people like you know saying like this was supposed to be a more brotherly sisterly. I was like, oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> like I think it still reads. It doesn't read as overtly romantic, mm-hmm. like in many ways. But I still think. And I like that in the sense I kind of like that it was more subtle and that the romance wasn't like in your face, especially because so much else is happening in the movie. But I think I think it's really easy. I don't think you have to like stretch very far to read it romantically. You know, like they put I think it was a good choice on their part to reel back on it because it wasn't distracting. But I think we definitely well, I definitely could see that like this is like something that probably could turn romantic. Yeah, and I think one thing that's really interesting about that and about the readings of it is how it's not, you know, explicitly romantic and they don't have the big kiss, but there are those moments that we as a viewer read as romance anyway. And I I think what's really interesting about that is to question if that narrative kind of, if the characters were taken out of it and you were to read that as like a queer narrative and how a lot of the times that's how, that is the explicit queer narrative that you'll get. And you, a lot of the times in media, won't get the big kiss at the end and you do just get these little moments. And it's really interesting to me how this heterosexual relationship is almost framed in the same way that a lot of the times queer romance is framed in kind of more mainstream narratives. That's interesting. Um, I did not think about it in that way. Uh, I was like, like listening to you guys talk, I was more thinking about... uh, was there like for Mako to be able to get into the Jaeger like was there was she helped by Raleigh because Raleigh was interested in her romantically so like initially like the whole flirting of like oh like you're not doing this right like I can fight better than you and then Raleigh being like give her a chance give her a chance and then like like yeah, like, is Mako's success dependent on, like, a sort of, like, heteronormative, mm-hmm. like, relationship that requires, like, like white masculinity to give her a boost up, um, but also, like, her as the model minority is, like, already, like, studying all his moves and, like, working so hard, um, but then also, like, she's not allowed room for failure, where, like, when she does have that flashback, right. like... Um, the generals like remove her, you know, like she's not, she's not fit. Yeah. I can't help think that, you know, 2013, when it was released, we are at least, you know, the, the nation and the media saying we're post race and somehow the movie, right. Trying to kind of replicate that. But then we realize once we scratch the surface, both of our society and of the movie that we're anything but post race. Um, but In its favor, as we kind of wrap this up, let's just put this in some context. Let's think about the kind of savior um, and the romance narrative in Avatar. And then let's think about the (laughs) hypersexualization that happens with the camera itself in Transformers. Um, 
you know, and maybe we can see more of a glimmer of real like innovation with Del Toro, even if he doesn't go as far as we want him to go. But yeah, who wants to jump in here? Yeah, um, I absolutely despise both Avatar and um, and the Transformers <laughs> franchise. Not the show, and not the Avatar: The Last Airbender show. I just want to make that very clear. But the James Cameron movie, and I despise both of them for so many reasons. But a lot of them do have to deal with the gender and race, and that's one way that I found Pacific Rim really refreshing, even in the way of, you know, like we discussed, it doesn't, you know, totally get everything right. And there are ways that it stumbles. It's actively trying, though. And I think you can see that kind of active trying to subvert a lot of the things that movies like Avatar and Transformers kind of go to. And I think with the scene that um, Hannah brought up about kind of um, Mako looking at Raleigh changing is almost a like not necessarily a comment I wouldn't go so far as like wow revolutionary but it definitely stands in contrast to a lot of scenes in of women like undressing like the Megan Fox scene that we dress or that we looked at in class and it definitely is kind of a similar vein of that of coming kind of giving Mako her own gaze that she is allowed to have and is able to kind of relish in rather than be admonished for and so I think it is making progress and is definitely conscious of you know the milieu that it's enacting in and I do give it props for that in the end yeah I feel like for me I feel like I'm interested in how much Raleigh was like a likable character for me he wasn't just like the random white guy who's like you can do the best you can and then like just randomly like (laughs) fixes everything like he's back you know he's a big buff dude who does everything but I think even if they didn't like explore his PTSD he has a lot of he has a lot of interesting qualities about him and I feel like his interactions with Mako are very they're vulnerable and they're like they're actually interesting like I'm not it's not overly sexualized and I can like enjoy their interactions and how like their relationship grows I feel like they do that very well like I'm not so I feel like Del Toro challenges that like this idea of like the regular like male action lead that I'm so irritated by <laughs> the like stereotypical one and I feel like Raleigh in that sense was much more likable to me because I was like I wasn't just like rolling my eyes at him he was like I guess like an actual person he had like feelings emotions and he was like you know he was siding in a way that I could like relate to him into I see you nodding your head. What's <laughs> what's on your mind here if we're comparing these? Um yeah. okay, so I like as as I said earlier, like I really liked how the relationship was portrayed. Like I don't have a thing against like I personally really like romance in movies. I just don't like when it's like off just forced down your throat because these are the only two good-looking heterosexual main characters. So they obviously <laughs> they have to be together. But like I really do think that they had a special connection um and they understood each other in different ways that like like no one else could relate to. Um and when you compare that to like the relationship in Avatar, like like looking back at it, like I can only just roll my eyes cuz it's like like this some random like not only like he's not just a white guy but he's from like the United States and he, he goes into this alien world and he's like better than all of them and he can ride this bird that no one else can and it's like so obnoxious and like how how like how you can can you be any more obvious that you're like but in Pacific Rim they I I I really did like how like how Mako and Raleigh were definitely on the same level. Like it was not like Raleigh was doing most of the work or like 
or like Mako wasn't like doing anything. They were definitely on the same ground and they were equal. And I could definitely see that it was a very deliberate decision and like it was a very active decision to make them be on equal ground, which I really liked. So as we wrap this up, Hannah, do you want to say a few words? And Jendi, maybe you can close us out here for the day. Yeah. Um, I think for me, what kind of struck me about Pacific Rim, especially versus Avatar, which I didn't even think about it compared to Avatar. Um, I think Raleigh feels like more almost just kind of a piece of the puzzle, whereas in Avatar, he is the sole savior. You know, we we need Raleigh in moments. He serves a purpose, but he is not the only one who can get the job done. And in Avatar, it is just him. He comes in. He's the one who's the leader, and mm-hmm. he takes over. Raleigh just kind of – and even we have the co-protagonists themselves. You know, we need both of them. We can't just have Raleigh to save the day. Yeah, and that's so um, – I mean, Hollywood's built its entire kind of master narrative in and around the lone white savior, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, yeah, Jindy, what do you want? I'm just a little shocked because I really liked Avatar. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize this was what was happening. And I really thought it was some great movie about, like, indigenous sovereignty and not white saviorism. So... (laughs) That's all I have to say. Okay, that's great. Um, All right. Well, I think we did some great work here. Professor Latinx, the podcast. Thank you, all of you guys. Thank you.